you know, a lot of the times, you know, we're operating from a place of lack and a place of struggle. And it's like, well, I have to make sure I'm good. I have to make sure my kids are good. I don't have time to think about what could be. Like, that's never going to happen. And I think talking about defunding the police and talking about abolition is is radical just in, in the imagining of it. I need to know. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Jonathan Walton. I'm here with Sai Hookstra and Susie Lahoud. Our guest this week is Kelly Young. Kelly is a black Christian lawyer, community organizer, and Brooklyn native working toward black liberation. After graduating from NYU Law, she worked in local and national criminal justice policy for five years, and she currently works as the Civil Rights Campaign Coordinator at Voices of Community Activists and Leaders New York, or Vocal New York. Kelly is committed to living out her faith and advocating for justice. We talked to her about what it looks like for those most affected by oppressive systems to lead movements for change, what it actually means to defund or abolish the police, redefining the idea of public safety, how our language can dehumanize people, what keeps Kelly going in her difficult work, and a whole lot more. Susie wasn't able to make this one, but Jonathan and I talked to Kelly uh, on a <laughs> on a dark and stormy night in New York. You're going to hear a little bit of thunder and rain. Uh, it's a really great conversation. And I think you're all going to love it. As a reminder, if you like this show, the best way you can support us is by going to ktfpress.com and subscribing. That gets you our weekly newsletter curating resources to help you in discipleship and political education as you seek to leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing for the three of us. It also supports this show and other projects we're working on, like future books. And you can now get a free month of that subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Again, that's ktfpress.com slash free month. Also, remember to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast player. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and tell your friends about us. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Kelly Young, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, can you just explain what exactly it is that Vocal does and what your your role is there? Yeah, so Vocal New York began over 20 years ago as the New York AIDS Housing Network um, and really doing advocacy around access to medication for people with HIV and making sure that they had access to housing and the resources that they needed in order to, you know, effectively take these drugs and survive. Um, And then we grew up out of that to bring in a lot of the other intersecting issues that face who was mostly directly impacted by HIV and AIDS, which were Black and Brown low-income people. And so that included the war on drugs, homelessness, uh, and the mass incarceration crisis. And so we grew from New York City to include chapters in Albany and Westchester and Rochester and Syracuse and Buffalo. So all throughout um, the state of New York. And we're really grounded in, you know, the principles of traditional community based organizing and black led social movements for racial justice. 
And the central premise to our work is that the people who are directly impacted by these issues are the ones who should be leading the fight. And my role at Vocal, I am the civil rights campaign coordinator. And so my job is really taking cues from our members and our leaders who are directly impacted by mass incarceration. So that can mean that you know, they themselves have gone to jail or prison. They have loved ones who have been in jail or prison or have been brutalized by the police or have just had contact with our carceral system. And so, you know, that can look a lot of different ways. And all of the work is aimed towards ending mass incarceration. And so that happens in a lot of different ways and on a lot of different levels of government. So it could be at the city level, working with city council members around our budget. Um, and trying to defund the police and other carceral institutions that can be on the state level, um, working towards um, parole justice for people who, you know, have been in prison for decades or people who have aged out of crime um, and just making sure that they there are avenues for people actually to be released from prison. Can I ask just for clarification? Mm -hmm. I I think I know what you mean by this, but when you say aged out of crime, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so there is a ton of research to show that the older we get, the less likely we are to engage in criminalized behavior. And so one of the bills that we are pushing is the elder parole bill, and that's on the state level. And it's just creating meaningful opportunities for relief for people who have been in prison, I don't want to get the the numbers wrong, but just for a a number of years and folks, and they would have been, you know, over 55 at this point now. Yeah, that makes sense. So thank you again for for being with us, Kelly, um, and for breaking all of that down. Like what, what is the importance to you of being part of a movement that's led directly by people affected by the systems you're trying to change? That was something I noticed that was special about vocal. So could you talk about that? Yeah, and I agree that it is it is special. So I'll kind of I'll kind of start from the beginning, I guess. So like I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I've always wanted to like advocate on behalf of people who, you know, are silenced by systems. Um and then I think like very quickly out of law school, I heard about the term movement lawyering, and I'm certain it has existed before and it's just something that I'd heard about. Law for Black Lives defines it as taking direction from directly impacted communities and from organizers as opposed to imposing our leadership or expertise as legal advocates. Um, And I think the first time I heard that, it really resonated with me and spoke to the tension that I was feeling in the work that I was doing before I came to Vocal, um, which was policy work um, around criminal justice reform, but it wasn't we didn't take our cues from people who were directly impacted. And, and so it was hard for me to kind of grapple with, you know, who are we actually helping if we're not talking to the people who've lived this out, if we're not, you know, taking, taking our cues from the people who are experts on how the system fails. Um, And I think vocal is very intentional about making sure that our leaders are central and at the forefront of all of the decisions that we make. Um, And so, you know, for me on a day to day, that's, you know, one of our leaders reached out and said, we're having a vigil and parole justice rally. Can we bring people out? And 
my answer is yes, because I take the cues from my leaders. They tell me what they think is important. They tell me where they want us to show up. And I, I coordinate that. But really, I'm taking the cues from them when they say we really want to work around qualified immunity because our loved ones are being brutalized in jails and prisons. Then mm. that's what we do. Um, mm. And then also, it's just for practical reasons, you know, people who have use drugs are going to be the experts on how to prevent overdose. People have who have been in jails and prisons are going to be the experts on how to make those systems more humane or abolish them altogether. People who have been homeless are going to be the best housing advocates. It just we we rely heavily on the expertise that our members have because of, you know, what what their lived experiences are. Yeah, mm, right. It seems like such a simple idea, but <laughs> it is something that is really not intuitive within the policy world. Right. Yeah. Not intuitive and actively resisted. No, it's yeah. true. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of ego among, <laughs> among mm-hmm. attorneys. And, and even, even the way I thought about the kind of lawyer I wanted to be was one where I'm front and center. I'm making the arguments. I'm telling my client what the best you know, strategy is and things like that. And just because that's how you, that's what you're taught a lawyer is. Um, and, and a lot of times that kind of lawyering is harmful for individuals and for communities because it's, it's not centered on, you know, what the client actually needs all the time or what is, what communities need all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you mentioned uh, movement lawyering. And when I was in law school, I, I learned about this as well. It sounded intuitive. It made sense to me in terms of like, you know, the idea is you take your cues from the people, like you said, who are affected by the systems. And, you know, people even go so far as to advocate, like, you should live among those people, you should do your best to try and like experience the world the way that they experience it, you should try and have the same um, challenges to a certain degree, or at least, you know, like live where people are and like, you know, in like a practical way, it made a lot of sense. It was kind of like, yeah, the lawyers who serve people who are being oppressed by by oppressive systems should basically have the same relationship to those people that like the rich lawyers who are serving rich people have, right? Like they're living the same lives. They're experiencing the same things. They have, you know, the cultural understanding of their clients. They're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely agree with being, and I'm going to quote Brian Stevenson, who... I love um, proximate with being exactly with being proximate. I yes. do not though believe in like manufacturing struggle. Like I yeah. don't think that mm, yes, you, yes, that's you a need fair to be like I'm going to live on the streets to see what homelessness is like. Yep. I do. I would not advocate for that at all um, because then it because I think what also happens is like so you're not listening to people who are homeless tell you what it's like to be homeless. Like, and even, and even in doing that, there's still, there's still privilege in being able to say like, I'm going to try out this thing and see how it is so that I can advocate better for the people who don't have a choice, but to live this way. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I I would not, I would not do it that way. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I do. I do think that there is a level where, you know, people do need to give up privileges. I don't, I just think it it lacks sincerity if it's like, I'm only doing this to see how the most, you know, directly impacted among us live. Like, or, or so I can be a leader who's like done my progressive due diligence. And now mm -hmm. I can like, I don't have to have as much guilt about the fact that I'm still acting from a place of incredible privilege. Yeah. I think in that, in that 
in that regard, it's like you don't belong in the forefront. Yeah. Like, just move. <laughs> like, let the person who has experienced those things be in front. And you yeah. can be a resource, you know, you can use your privilege to give people platforms, but you don't, you already have acknowledged that that's not the space you should be occupying because it's not your lived experience. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a good point of integrity and is definitely like a tension that you just can't escape when you're in an elite institution like a law school where where so many <laughs> of the people who are trying to serve uh, just don't come from the populations that they're serving and, or, or a lot of them don't anyways. And so uh, part of it then is is really just like the difficulty for a lot of lawyers who come from, I think, like wealthier backgrounds or whatever for, for white lawyers to just accept you need to really, really be in the background on this. And like a lawyer who who comes from the same population as you're as you're trying to serve is actually going to be doing a better job for real reasons, not for like whatever you think it is, not for for like affirmative action reasons or like diversity reasons or whatever. But there are there are real expertise that you don't have. I think that was just something that I I don't know, I ran into a lot in law school that was kind of hard for people to swallow. Yeah, definitely. And I think even just like in being a lawyer, there's sometimes where it's like we don't like lawyers are not always necessary. And yeah. I think, you know, coming to terms with that is important. Yeah. Litigation isn't always the answer. Yeah. And it's and it's like, because even for me, yes, I was born and raised in an overly policed community. So I have a lot of the same experiences as a lot of the people I work with in some regards. Like we can both say we come from the same community. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have a lot of shared cultural understandings, but I don't know what it is to be in prison. I don't know what it is to be homeless. I there there's still even as a black woman from a low income community that was overly policed. There are times where I still need to be in the background. There's a lot of times when I need to be in the background, and I'm always blown away by like our members and our leaders because of yes, they have the experience of being brutalized by you know, these carceral systems, but there's also a power in being able to speak up out of that experience. And and then just like, just a brilliance and, and, a, and a knowledge about the system and how it works, having been inside of it and, and seeing those injustices. I think they can speak to the corruption and injustice and violations in a way that I never could. Like, I, I'll never be able to do it the same way. And it's not like, oh, I need to go to prison to see what it's like. It's like, no, I need to sit down and let them talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think I do think there's like a level of, you know, humility that is required to actually, you know, effectuate the change that we want to see. Yeah. So it sounds like what you were saying was that people need to own their identity, own their experiences and own their privilege and not consume other people's experiences to like create a new thing for them, right? For themselves. And I'm I'm wondering, like, how does that look on a day to day basis? Like when you're experiencing issues, right? And like, if you're doing a case around mass incarceration, or you're advocating for some around homelessness, like, how do you try to embody that in your everyday? Yeah, that's a good question. So right now, we are having meetings with the Democratic nominees for city council, because Mm. they're the people we're going to have to lean on when we want 
the police to fund it. Um, and so we want to start early with building relationships and, you know, just seeing where we're aligned. And so, you yeah. know, my role, or rather my fellow's role, who has been amazing and I'm sad she's going to leave for the summer, has been like scheduling those calls. And like my role is making the agenda. But then my leaders are the ones who are, you know, naming what the crises are. They're talking about what the problem is with homelessness. They're talking about what the problem is with mass incarceration and drug use. Um, and just access to resources and the and injustices that they're seeing in their communities and how their families or, or even themselves have been brutalized by the system and, you know, what changes that they want to make and, and what questions they have for these electives. And I think, I think the way on a day-to-day basis I do the work is I create the space, but the leaders and the members of Vocal are the ones who, who occupy it, who, who speak up out of their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even like a lot of times, you know, with press, we'll be at events or we'll get requests and it's hard. And it's something that I, you know, I'm still trying to get better at. Cause you know, sometimes it's easier to just say, okay, I'm going to answer the question for the journalists and move on and check that off. But, you know, those are opportunities for me to then lead on my lean on my leaders and say, Hey, we got this request. Do you want to talk to this journalist? Do you want to, you know, be interviewed for this story? Um, and, and, and it takes more work because then it's like, okay, we got to talk, we got to prep, we got to do these things. I have to make sure that they feel comfortable. But I think that that's that's the role where it's like I could I could just be the person who always talks to press. Like I could I could do that, but I wouldn't be doing my job because my job is about developing the political power of people who are most directly impacted. And doing that is you know handing off press media requests and press requests to to the leaders and letting them yeah. be the ones who are quoted in those stories and letting them be the ones who, who are really the experts in the field because they are. Yeah. That, that honestly like sounds like the proper application of that voice where it's like, quote unquote, like be a voice for the voiceless. You just like hand the mic to the people that nobody will listen to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's great. It's that's happened great. where it's like, I was, we had a, we had a protest, um, like commemorating the one year since um, George Floyd was murdered um, mm. by police. And like, there were a ton of reporters there and they were like, can we talk to you? And then it's literally me turning around looking for one of my leaders and be like, talk to this person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, like, mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Okay. So a couple of times now switching gears a little bit, you've, you've mentioned abolition, you've mentioned defunding. Can we just define these terms for people? Because there is so much misinformation out there. Um, yes. And I, I, you know, we, we talked briefly before we did it, uh, the episode on foster care a few weeks ago, and I brought up abolition a little bit and just telling the very basic fact that it's not about literally just getting rid of any sort of system for, you know, in that case, child, child safety or child protection, but it's about like radically transforming and rebuilding like more life affirming systems. But how do you define it? How do you, how do you think about it? Or how does Vocal New York think about it? Yeah. So, well, one, I will say, I don't. I don't know if Vocal New York would say that it's like an abolitionist organization. Um, so I'll just say that. But I do think that it's important. And it's even important for a lot of our members and our leaders to make the distinction between, you know, what we mean when we say defund and what we, and, and then what, you know, abolition is. And so, you know, the call to defund the police, which, you know, it is like a catchphrase, it's a hashtag, um, and it requires a lot of unpacking. Um, but really it is a call to divest from harmful institutions. And so that can be the police, that can be the district attorney, that can be, you know, Department of Corrections. Um, and then 
always within the call for defund. And, and, and a lot of times a conversation and a narrative is, is, is lost, um, is the investment in communities. Mm-hmm. Um of the resources that they need. And that's, you know, housing, that's access to health and mental health resources, that's access to jobs, that's access to clean spaces, is access, is, is space to, to grow and thrive. And, and so I think that that's what we mean when we say defund. It is not about the removal of these institutions overnight. But for Vocal, though, um, it is calling for their immediate removal of police from homelessness, substance use, and behavioral mental health responses. Mm. We just, you know, believe, and I think the data bears this out, um, that our city's response to, and that's, and that's police response, that's court response, that's corrections response to homelessness, substance use, and behavioral mental health um, crises is just ineffective, to say the least. Um, yeah. And then... You know, in times it's deadly. It's just it's deadly, and and there's no. It's not. It's not a space that these actors should be occupying, and it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's not a a long term solution. Like it's not like oh yeah, we want to dismantle policing, and it's going to take years. Like, yes, but the removal of them from these instances needs to happen immediately. Yeah. So like, I think defund is, it's not the same as abolition, but it is on the track to abolition. It, so by removing police from, you know, these spaces where, you know, they are ineffective or harmful and by investing in communities, I think it will show over time that these systems are not necessary. These systems are not effective. These systems do not make us safe. Um, and it makes the argument for abolition, which is a complete removal of policing as we know it, um, of like corrections as we know it. Um, and so I think, I think defund is a, a necessary first step on the way to complete abolition of, of these carceral systems that are rooted in white supremacy and capitalism. Oh, I will also say, I think people panic when we talk about abolition and it's like, well, what, what's, what are we going to have? What's, what's going to keep us safe? What happens when this bad thing happens? Mm. Or like people are like, well, what if, what if I get shot? And it's like, you're going to need a doctor. You're going <laughs> right. to need healthcare. You're going right. to need sick leave. <laughs> you're going to, you know, you're going to need, you're going to need infrastructure in place to make sure you can heal. Right. Like the, the, the harm has already been done. Police are not going to help you in this situation. Um, And so I think, and and yeah, and I think, you know, there's, and I think you said this before, Sai, like there's a thinking around abolition that we're talking about taking things away and like, we're not going to have anything. But I think, you know, on the contrary, abolition is about having everything. It's it's about, it's like an invitation to imagine like how our communities could be without these oppressive systems. Like, what is it? You know, what does it look like to have everything we need? What does it look like for everyone in our community to be housed, to have access to resources? Um, and that's not, I don't think that's something that we've ever seen. And, and you know, a lot of the times, you know, we're operating from a place of lack and a place of struggle. And it's like, well, I have to make sure I'm good. I have to make sure my kids are good. I don't have time to think about you know, what could be like, that's never going to happen. And I think 
you know, talking about defunding the police and talking about abolition, you know, is, is radical just in, in the imagining of it. Um, and, and it's hard. Um, and I, and I will name, I will name that it is difficult just because, you know, we've, we've been trained to think of safety in the same breath that we think of policing. Um, and, 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 and kind of like divorcing that is a lot of the work, uh, that I'm doing. Yeah. I, I, something that a lot of abolitionists point out rather frequently is that, you know, the vast majority of crimes that are reported to the police have already happened. And the vast majority of those crimes do not get solved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Like that most of the time, what you're doing when you're calling 911 is, is, you know, putting the fact that something happened to you, like in a filing cabinet somewhere in a police station. Yeah. That is like the sum total of what's happening. So I, yeah, there's just like so much room to, to reimagine even just from that one fact. And I'm not, you know, obviously there are things that happen that police do in some ways solve and people are asking you to reimagine you the listener (laughs) to reimagine i don't know how like the ways that we go about solving those things and the collateral consequences of the of the ways that we do it now and how those things can change and um i just very much appreciate you laying that out for us definitely and i do think though that i think on the like far far left where it's like just get rid of the police altogether and it's fine i think there is a need to grapple with the fact that there is harm and, you know, even when we defund the police and, you know, get rid of, of harmful systems altogether, there's still going to be harm. Like we are people, yeah. we hurt each other like that. That's what yeah. we do. Um, and so I think there is a need, you know, even in conversations about defunding the police and abolition to name that, you know, there's harm, but we want to address it in a way that does not cause more harm. Yeah. Um, and, and think through ways to do that. Um, you know, what, what do we do when we don't have the option of throwing someone away? What do we do when we, you know, have to keep someone in community? Like, how do we, how do we handle that? Um, and I definitely am not trying to say that I have all the answers to that, but I I do think that is something, and it's going to look different in different communities, but I will say it's something that at least in, in, in a lot of, you know, low income black and brown communities that happens and it just happens organically when you build community with people like growing up in Brownsville, you know, you had people who routinely had mental health crises and you knew who those people were and you knew like, okay, they're having a moment. I'm going to call this person. Cause I know that that person can handle it. And we're just going to leave them. You, you just, you just, you know how people need to be cared for because they're your community members. You know, right. that if there's something bad happened, you know who the person is to call, you know, whether or not that's, the guy at the bodega and who you know is going to call your grandmother and your grandmother's going to come like there we have been keeping ourselves safe for a very long time and i don't think we've been naming that as public safety you know i would go to school i would have to take the train and it's like people would report to my mom when they saw me get on the train and when they saw me go in the building and it's like that is public safety and not something that we've been doing and we we know instinctively how to keep ourselves safe um and so i think a lot of it is like unlearning this idea that we need to be policed by people outside of ourselves or outside of our communities. Yeah. So <laughs> something that as you're talking that stands out to me is this. I think the statistic is that only 21% of Americans actually interact with the police mm. every year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you're talking about public safety. Yeah. 
we're talking about a population of people that wants to be safe from other people. That's what it seems like to me. So I know that's a, it sounds to me like a broad assumption, but if 80% of the population does not interact with the police on a regular basis annually, and, and that could be years of not interacting with the police, then there's a perception of safety and then like safety from what, right? So I'm wondering, um, particularly as Eric Adams is a presumptive nominee yeah. mm-hmm. um, for, for mayor, I'm, I'm so sorry. I feel like I just threw like water <laughs> on you. Um, as public safety becomes something that is more prominent and talked about um, in the real imagined or felt crisis of violence in the United States, what is what is Vocal's response? Like, how do you respond to someone that says, I'm afraid of X? And I think the police are going to help me. Yeah, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> I've been uh, sitting here quiet for a while. Formulate, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. So a lot of answers. One one of the things that we notice in our most recent budget fight, trying to defund the police, is that there is an overwhelming lack of community buy-in and alignment around what we mean when we say defund the police and invest in communities. Um, and so a lot of the work that we're doing now is around having those conversations with people and getting to the mm-hmm. root of like, what, what do you mean when you say public safety? Like what, what actually makes you feel safe? Right. And, and then, and, and recognizing, cause I think what needs to happen, there needs to be a level of trust where mm-hmm. the 80% of people who don't interact with the police trust the 20% of people who do and who are Mm -hmm. saying yeah no they don't keep us safe if anything they cause us harm um and I think and I think because there's there's a real disconnect and it it will only require trust and I think it goes back to you know what we were saying where it's like this is not your lived experience it will never be your lived experience and so the only option you have if you're actually trying to achieve you know, a greater end is to trust the people who are directly impacted, you know, when they say, you know, police don't keep us safe. And these are the things that we need to keep us safe. Um, And one of the ways we're trying to do that is like with deep canvassing and and it's something that we're hoping to roll out um, in the fall, you know, where we have those conversations where it's like, what has your interactions with police officers been? Because for a lot of people, you know, even within the 20% of people who do interact with the police, a lot of there's a lot of times where those interactions are requested. Like people are right. calling for the police. They're like, this thing happened and I need you to come. Whereas like in communities where I grew up, they're an occupying force. Nobody called for them. They're just mm. there all the time. Like even I'm in Crown mm. Heights now and I walk in the park and they're literally in in their vans in the park, like just mm. driving around the park. And it's like no one is asking for you to be there. You're not. You're not here because I asked you to. You're not here to be in community right. with me to make me feel safe. Or at least that that is not how I'm perceiving it. Mm. Um, and so I think I think what's needed is like conversations around like what actually makes us feel safe. Because even even in Brownsville, there and I think a lot of it is generational. Because even mm. talking to my parents, sometimes there are huge disconnects. Um, where it's like, you don't mean like abolish the police, like, because we still need the police, and which is baffling to me sometimes. But, you know, policing looked different when my parents were growing up. There was, you know, community policing, and you knew who the officers were, and they lived in the community. And so mm. it was, it was a sense of, and, and in that way, it created a sense of safety. Um, but I think creating a space where people can like speak up out of 
what their experiences have been with police. Um, Because sometimes Mm. it'll be like, oh, yeah, the police officer came because I was locked out and they helped me. And then you can be like, well, did that person need to have a gun? Right. Or you can be like, oh, yeah, this person was experiencing a crisis and the cop came and talked to them and helped them. And it's like, okay, well, did that person need to have a gun? Um, Because at the bottom line, we're not saying that, you know, things won't happen. But does the person who responds to it need to respond with with violence? And a right. license to kill people who make yeah. them feel nervous. Right. And I think just having having the conversation. And and that's that's hard. <laughs> um, because you know, there's a lot of things where, you know, people get people get upset, people shut down, and it's like, I don't want to be fun, I don't want to talk about it. Or on the flip side, like from my perspective, you know, I could get frustrated with somebody and be like, You just don't get it, I'm not gonna listen to you. Um mm. you don't understand. Um, but I think there needs to be a willingness on like all the sides to just listen. Um right. And then, and then, I don't know, in, in a very real way, we're, we're operating against, like, evil forces that want there to be um, people who are policed. Um, and so I think, I think that's, like, the t- top layer over all the work that I'm doing is, like, yes, we can, like, agitate communities into action, into fighting against this. But there are still people in positions of power who benefit from the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so, like, grappling with that is its, its own its own i don't know what word to use <laughs> um but yeah do you not know what word to use because we told you you can't swear on the podcast <laughs> basically um so you you shared a lot of heavy things with us that you deal with every day mm-hmm. um from growing up where you grew up to like actively working against against systems and structures that occupied your neighborhood what's your motivation for doing this kind of work and how do you maintain the energy and the hope to do it. Yeah. I mean, the energy, I don't always maintain that. Um, <laughs> but, but I think like the motivation really is like, I want, I want to be free. I want to be able to just be, um, and I can't because mm-hmm. there are systems in place that is like just dead set on the control and devastation of people who look like me. Um, Mm. So a lot of it is selfish. It's like, I want to, I want everyone to be free Mm. so that I can be free. (laughs) Um, And, and, and I think, and I think that that should be everyone's reason for doing Mm. justice work really. Um, Because you see that like all of our liberation is just tied up in each other Um, I want to be able to get to the other side of imagining a world where we all have the resources that we need to thrive. I grew up, I don't, yeah, I don't have another answer. I don't know what other work I would be doing. I'm trying to think, I'm like, if I wasn't doing this kind of work, like there was no other lawyer I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That's I can attest to that. I went to law school with Kelly. There was literally nothing else she wanted to do. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and I think I think a lot of it is like being raised where I was raised. And I will say Brownsville is a beautiful place. I think there Absolutely. was like uh like, ooh, you was raised in this neighborhood and it was mm. terrible. And it's like Brownsville's great. The people who live there are great. Like mm-hmm. um, you know, if you know, government structures invested in Brownsville the way they invest in other communities, it would be even greater. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think being raised there and being raised in a black church where like faith Mm -hmm. and activism went hand in hand, kind of just like developed my like 
worldview really and my understanding of of my faith and like who Jesus was like Jesus is an abolitionist guys um, and, you know please, like please elaborate like he came to like dismantle institutions of oppression that was his whole jam mm-hmm. um he like he was fighting for freedom he was like these are the people I'm aligned with and those people were homeless people. Jesus was homeless. He was a refugee. He was a criminal. Like that that's his identity and that's the identity of people he brought alongside him. And so I think a huge part of like faith is advocacy. And so I think and like growing up for me, it was like regular to just like see elected officials and candidates come into the church and talk about, you know, how they were gonna fight for communities and then we would be loud if they weren't (laughs) if they didn't like hold true to those promises and so I think yeah my like faith and my advocacy have always been like intertwined in a way where I think I'm like grateful for the space I'm in now because I think there are just more opportunities for me to kind of talk about them both at the same time which is cool and like wasn't happening before and so I'm like always excited like like, Sai, even when you asked me to do this, I'm like, yes, I want to talk about justice because I think that's all that Jesus was talking about. And he was murdered for it. And I think that that is what happens all the time in this country. And, you know, in, in all countries where people are fighting for people. And so I think, and I think that was on purpose. I think, you know, like Jesus could have been born into any family. He could have like built an actual church in a place and had a house and just was like, people come to me kind of thing. And that's not what he was. Like he was born into poverty. He was a refugee. Like he was homeless. He was wrongfully convicted. He was executed. And that's not, none of it is glamorous. None of it is cute. Like he came for a certain kind of people to say, you know, I want you to be whole. Like, I think like my orientation of justice is about making people whole. Um, and I think that's what defunding the police is about. It's like, take away these things that devastate communities and make them whole. Yeah. That, that's what motivates me. And I think if, if, I don't think if like God and, and, and the, the Christ that I'm following, I don't think if that wasn't my foundation that I would be able to just like dive headfirst into this work the way that I do, because it is terrible. <laughs> um, mm. and yeah. it is, like traumatizing and even to like hear like there's like the things that I experienced growing up in in the spaces that I did but like listening to the like experiences of you know vocal members and vocal leaders day in and day out like it'll just be a casual conversation and they're talking about how like their loved one is like brutalized again in prison um and it is devastating and I think victory is promised and so I think that Mm. is that is what keeps me going like we have we have to win like there's no there's no other option. Amen. I realized I was nodding a lot while you were saying all those things. Oh, good, like, good. It's, it's weird when I can't see you. I'm like, are they are they listening? I well, not know. only can you not see me, but the listeners also like that's just utterly pointless to be sitting here nodding. <laughs> <laughs> Verbalize your nodding. Yeah, for real. Yes, yes, start yes. saying the word nod as I do it. Um, <laughs> Kelly, I'm I'm so happy you were here. This is great. This is exactly what I knew it would be. Yay! <laughs> you would be um, fantastic and passionate and and uh, a delight to talk to. Where can people follow you? And is there anything that you would like to plug? 
Um, yeah, one of the things I want to encourage people to do is literally to watch the mouse. The, the language is is life and it informs how we view ourselves and how we view others. And one of the things that we are very adamant about at Vocal is always using people-centered language um, across all of the issues. And it's, and it's something where it does require a lot of grace because we're not always going to get it right. Um, but I think if you approach it with a level of intention, it has the power to really transform the world. Like calling people who are incarcerated, people who are incarcerated (laughs) instead of prisoners or inmates, you know, has, has the effect of one, making you remember that they are human and then letting them know that you also think that they are human calling people who use drugs, people who use drugs instead of addicts, Mm. you know, reminds you that they are people first. And even, even when we're talking about public safety, you know, there, de Blasio is constantly talking about like wanting to clean up the street so that tourists will want to come back. And because the the people who are there are dirt. Exactly. Right. It's like, so what? And yeah, so like, and I think, and I think, you know, it it requires a level of like consciousness and like a critical mind and eye to like hear what is being said, you know, when people talk about like cleaning up the streets or even like with people who use drugs, where it's like, oh, like talking about like dirty needles or saying like, oh, this person is clean because they're not using drugs to suggest that people who don't, who do use drugs are not clean or like having someone's blood on a needle makes it dirty. It's like, it's a used syringe and this person is using drugs. Like mm-hmm. it's the, 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 the connotations that our language has, I think perpetuates a lot of the stigma and allows for a lot of the harmful policies to continue. Yeah, because um, it's, it's a lot harder to, you know, legislate for harmful policies when you are using people first language, where you have to actually reckon with the humanity of the people who will be uh, impacted by these policies. And I think it, it starts it can start at home, you know, just making sure what you're saying is in full recognition of the humanity of the people you're talking about. Yeah. Amen. That's a very good practical step. I appreciate that very much for the listeners. Yes. Um, yes. Is there anything from from Vocal New York or anywhere else that you want people to check out? Um, if folks are interested in learning more or actually, you know, being boots on the ground with us, you can follow um, Vocal New York at Vocal New York um, on Twitter. Is that so? They'll actually you can actually get like volunteer opportunities and stuff from that. Yeah. Um, and if you're interested in organizing opportunities with Vocal New York, you can visit us at vocal-ny.org um, and click contact us. Awesome. Kelly Young, thank you so much for being here. We were so happy to have you. This was amazing. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shake the Dust. Please make sure to subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com. And don't forget, you get a free month with that subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. That's ktfpress.com slash free month. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ktfpress. Subscribe to or follow this podcast in your favorite podcast player. And write into us at shakethedust at ktfpress.com with any questions you may have about anything that you've heard. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week. When we arrive as
Sorry, there was lightning. No, I saw lightning, so I was like, "This thunder coming." Sorry, that was so loud. <laughs> I saw the lightning flash, and I was like, oh, "Okay." Can make our podcast sound epic, right? You don't have to cut it out just by putting thunder in the. In God the is co-signing. That's what that right. is. God is God. absolutely criminalized behavior. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.